Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, September 18th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writers, Huai Tranbui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Jacob is not joining us today. He is out sick. We wish him well. Uh, get well soon, Jacob. Uh, but we will move on without him and without the joke book. It's going to be a happy, happy Friday. So, uh, okay, let's uh, let's start off with what we've been doing. Uh, I know I was on the podcast last week talking about my time in Vegas. I, I kept some stuff off there because I just had so much stuff to talk about. Uh, but I did do some other interesting things in Vegas. Like I went to Top Golf for the first time. I'm not sure if if everybody out there knows what Top Golf is. I think we talked about it on the water cooler maybe a couple of years ago at this point. But it is like a driving range, a golf driving range. It has multiple levels. I think it has like three or four different levels. And the the driving range itself has like these these futuristic it's like future golf it's like blade runner golf where like it it doesn't have like just normal holes it has like these these big circular things that are lit up and uh depending on how you play like there's like modes that you can actually play you might have to try to get into one of the lit up holes that's lit up at that point or you get certain points like it's cool because the the computer that is in your pod like you get this like little sectioned off area with like your own couch you can order drinks and food um it's uh during this pandemic time the 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 little sections are uh walled off with plexiglass uh to protect you from i guess spit from you know the other pods uh but you have this computer that like it tracks the ball so like actually when you hit a ball you actually can look over at this computer screen that's like in your pod area and you can see where the ball is actually going and how many points you get for how many yards you hit or if you hit it in the right depending on the game and stuff like that 
but it, it's really just an excuse to you know hang out with some friends get some drinks uh hit some balls i i've never been at a driving range before i've done mini golf before uh this is i'm not good <laughs> and uh we have a video that's gonna be on ordinary adventures of our experience uh, coming out next week but you can see how bad i am at hitting the ball and by the way, by bad hitting the ball, I mean sometimes I don't even hit it. Sometimes I, I like do those like swings, and <laughs> I don't even hit the ball. This really uh, does sound like it has all the fun of Blade Runner, Peter. <laughs> it, okay, Brad, do a search of Top Golf at night. No, no, I've, see... I, no, no, I've played Top Golf, but Wait, I, okay, I, is this mini golf or like? No, golf, it's golf. It, it's like a, it's a driving range, oh, and, okay. like, and, and then there's like these like colored holes out in the driving range that you try and get your hit your ball in there, and you get like certain points for getting it inside of the the yeah. certain ranges. And stuff. I was gonna say like if this is mini golf, you literally just putt. So if you're missing that, Peter, you have serious no. problems. <laughs> no, I'm trying to drive these balls okay. uh, right. multiple yards. All right, uh, but it's interesting because this is the one we went to in Las Vegas. I think it's the biggest top golf in the company and it like we didn't have one of these suites i guess you pay more by how high you are are up on the levels like i think we were on level two and i think it goes up to level like four or five and i think on the top level like this like the pods themselves like the little like hangout areas where you have the couch and you're hitting balls with your friends i think they have their own like jacuzzis because vegas but um, it, I don't know. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I am not an athletic person, uh, but I still enjoyed it. Brad, you've been to Top Golf. Uh, what do you What do you think of Top Golf? Yeah, it's fun. Um, I, typically, I pretty much hate golf unless it's mini golf, and like I don't mind driving ranges. This makes it a little bit more fun because it feels like a game, and it's it's mostly about hanging out with friends and you know, kind of goofing around. Um, but I had a lot of fun with it. We went um, to one in. Uh, utah for um one of my uh my sister's sibling my sister my girlfriend's uh sister's birthday uh and we had a lot of uh, a lot of fun there yeah um but it was a lot of fun and they, they have good food too like we had like these bao bun tacos and uh one of the employees at the top golf uh was an ordinary adventures fan so like we just randomly got like uh delivered to our table like these like donut holes these like cinnamon donut holes where you take they have these like um what do you call that like glazed things that you inject into the donut holes uh they sent it to our our table so it it was um i don't know it was a lot of fun um yeah and i'm like you brad i i I enjoy mini golf but i'm not a golf person and i still enjoy top golf so uh I'd recommend it. Uh, I might not recommend it in Las Vegas during September when like it's like 110 degrees. That's probably not a good time to go, especially when you have to like wear your mask and stuff. <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, that that's what I've been doing. Uh, I guess let's move on to what we've been reading. HD, what have you been reading? So you guys remember when I talked about getting the Books of Earthsea Collected Edition all the way back in Christmas of last year. And it's this giant hardcover hardcover tome. And I started to kind of dig into it back at the beginning of quarantine, but then I had to leave it back in New York when I came back home because <laughs> I don't know if I can overstate how heavy it is. It's a very heavy book. And I was like, I'm not lugging this all the way back to Virginia. But now that I was back in New York, I decided to dig into it again and uh, read a couple of the old books that I hadn't read in like 
20 years or so, um, specifically The Tombs of Atuan, which is the second book in the Earthsea series. And it's my favorite one and one that I read like back when I was eight or nine or something and really loved. And it was so it was so interesting reading it again. And it's still just as fresh and as um, 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 fantastical and invigorating as I, when I first read it. Um, and I, I really enjoyed reading it like over the weekend. It was a nice kind of uh, little break away from the screen. And my roommate thought it was really funny because I would bring it to the rooftop and it's like this comically large book that's as big as my head. And she's like, <laughs> she's like, you look, you know, you look ridiculous reading it, but it was just, um, it was cool to read it from in this book and uh, read it again after revisit again after like 20 years and kind of through new light. Um, I hadn't, re- I remember when I first read it, I hadn't realized that the characters were actually people of color. That was something that was kind of sneakily put into the books, which is kind of amazing for a fantasy book that was written in like the 1960s, 1970s. And um, most, what struck me the most after like finishing it again um, was the afterword that Ursula Le Guin wrote for um, the tombs of Atuan. And she'd written it like, I don't know, 20 years after she had first published it in 1970. And she talked about how um, it was so unusual for her to have this female protagonist, this female heroine at the center of fantasy book when she published it at the time in 1970, um, because it was very rare for a female her- like protagonist in that genre. And it seemed so natural to me when I first read it, I didn't even think about it. And um, in kind of reading that afterward and rethinking about the context in which she published it, it's really amazing to me just like how much this book in particular, The Tombs of Atuan, is like a secret, has like a lot of feminist undertones to it. And um, she, she she writes about it a little bit in that it's, uh, it's about this girl uh, who is chosen from a young age to be the priestess of um, this underground te- temple that worships the Dark Ones. And uh, she, at, she's called like the Eaten One. She's her name is taken from her and she's uh, treated as like this reincarnation of this priestess and uh, kind of treated as a, as a God in a way, but also a servant to these old gods who no one knows if they even exist or if they um, play any part in humanity anymore. And um, she's, and it's, it's interesting because it's about like this girl having dominion over this domain that is just um, abandoned and deserted and empty and still being restricted by that despite being a, a kind of a ruler in this in this world and having a power. Um, and it was just a, it was a fascinating sort of way to, to speak on the, like the feminine experience, I guess, just like having power in like the little worlds, but still outside of that being incredibly oppressed by it. I'm maybe it's like um I I'm trying to explain it in a way that for uh, people who haven't read it, but it is a really fascinating read into it, especially Ursula Le Guin speaking about that in her afterwards. So I recommend reading The Tombs of Atuan and uh taking it taking that um meaning into account and and uh it'll really elevate the book beyond just kind of the children's fantasy book that um is still really enjoyable. But it's just uh it was really uh, eye opening for me when I was rereading again. So that was just a a cool experience I had over the weekend reading my giant, comically large hardcover hardcover tome. Is there any other way to read this other than in a over large, comically uh, hardcover tome? I mean, I'm sure it's somewhere in bookshops, um, and 
e-readers. Although I will say, I remember when I was, uh, I don't know, I was like browsing Barnes & Noble a couple years ago and trying to look for Ursula Le Guin books. And they're very hard to find. I don't know why. And I felt like that was strange to me because I felt her, I feel like her books were so influential in the fantasy and genre and like sci-fi genres. And I was wondering why she just like is not present in a lot of bookstores. So that's always been a very strange thing to me. Um, but hmm. I recommend seeking her out. She's, she's really a fantastic writer and um, one that's been very formative for me. So I, yeah, I, I'm excited to dive more into the rest of the Earthsea books and kind of uh, approach them from a new perspective. Yeah. Ben, what have you been reading? I read If Beale Street Could Talk, which is James Baldwin's 1974 novel. Um, Barry Jenkins directed a movie adaptation of this uh, a couple years ago, and I really, really loved that movie. And I think it was last year for my birthday or something. Uh, some, maybe my parents or somebody gave me the book version of uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. Um, I have never read any of James Baldwin's uh, books before. I've seen that documentary, uh, I'm Not Your Negro, which is about him and his writing, which is really great. And I, I wanted to sort of dive in. Um, you know, his name has been mentioned a lot in terms of, uh, you know, the recent conversation that that you know, this conversation has been gone, ongoing for a while. But, um, you know, the recent awareness that everyone has had about racial issues in this country and the, the sort of heightened conversation. Um, Baldwin's name is, is somebody who comes up regularly in like a uh, recommended reading lists and stuff like that. So um, I thought this was a good time to sort of dive in finally and uh, and read this book. And man, it is so, so good. Um, it's it's a tough read uh, because the, the subject matter is like um, so fraught. It's such a fraught story. And um, it's just a, a masterwork of empathy, really. I really think that this should be required reading for just about everybody in this country. Um, it's an incredible piece of writing and it, it makes me appreciate the movie even more. I love the film, you know, without having read the book, but um, just seeing how well Jenkins was able to adapt this story and, and really retain almost all of it for the movie and, and the way that he edited it and sort of uh, reworked some of the pieces and, and um, you know, created this, uh, really incredible, you know, like, like the book, a masterwork of empathy. I think the movie is too. Um, but man, if Beale Street could talk, if you have not read this book, I would definitely recommend seeking that out. Let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, this past week, I watched a couple things. I watched console wars. This is a movie. It's based on a book. I think this premiered at the South by South west film festival it's going to be on cbs all access on september 23rd i got a screener for it but i think i can talk about it because it premiered at south by so i'm not gonna even look up my embargo uh, actually i don't think that you can peter i can't no because really? it, yeah well because south by southwest didn't happen and as far as i know that that documentary wasn't meant to be like a premiere documentary and it didn't screen there oh Okay, then I, apparently I cannot talk about console wars. Wow, this is awkward. <laughs> well, I saw it. I can tell you that. And I guess I'll talk to you about console wars in a future episode of this podcast. So there we go. Um, I also saw The King of Staten Island. I think this is on Amazon Prime now. It was on VOD. Uh, this is Judd Apatow, uh, Pete Davidson. This is... Um, Brad, I think you've talked about this movie, right? In the past? Yeah, yeah, I watched it like two or three weeks ago, I think. Yeah, I uh, 
I don't know. Th- this movie to me feels very uneven. Uh, I think Chris said it, w- it felt too long, and I, I agree with him. It uh, it's weird because it's it, I, I get it. It's doing the Judd Apatow thing where it's having this outrageous humor, but then side you know the, side by side with like trying to make you really care and be emotionally invested. But sometimes I feel like some of the outrageous humor like takes you away from the reality of the emotional connection to the story. If that makes sense. Um, I do think that this, this movie could be like 30, 45 minutes shorter and be a better film. Like I need, I, I feel like Apatow needs like a producer or editor that can, you know, he needs, a, he needs a Thelma Shoemaker. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, so King of Staten Island, I enjoyed it, but, you know, I think it would probably be like one of my least favorite uh, Apatow films. Uh, it, it, Brad, it, anything I said there, like, do you disagree with any of that? Um, I, I mean, it's definitely not my least favorite. And, and like, like I said, when I after I watched it, I think it's his most mature and um, I don't know, maybe his most ambitious as far as like trying to really go for like, you know, the emotional pulling of the heartstrings um but yeah i i really i really enjoyed it actually i, I do agree as with pretty much all jadapata movies it, it definitely could have been shorter um but but i still you know enjoyed it the whole way through pretty much yeah um what else have i been watching i've uh i watched on disney plus they have the magic of disney's animal kingdom this is a new uh documentary or reality what would you call this it's not a documentary series i guess it's just like an I mean, it's on the National Geographic side of things, so it's a uh, Nat Geo series. If you've ever seen a Nat Geo series, it's kind of like that. Um, it's and it feels more like a Nat Geo series than I was expecting. I was this being on Disney Plus for some reason, I was expecting this to delve more into uh, the Imagineering of this park. So in in Florida, they have this uh, theme park called Disney's Animal Kingdom. It's one of the four theme parks that Disney has in Walt Disney World. And it was created like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, something like that. Uh, it uh, It's one of the, it's the newest park there, basically. Uh, and it is a combination of a theme park and a zoo, but it's one of the most humane zoos in the world. I think uh, it's gotten kind of the reputation. Uh, like they have this whole ride where it's like the safari trek where you take this, uh, you load into this actual like Jeep vehicle and you go through like the safari and you like get a tour of like all the like different animals that are out there. So it's not like animals in cages or it never feels like the animals are in cages. It feels like they're in like hugely wide open areas and, uh, you know, very well themed and very well. Uh, I think I've read somewhere or maybe it was when I was doing my uh, junket for Zootopia. Uh, I was talking with someone there and they were saying that in the, the, the zoo, the world of zoos, uh, the, one of the biggest success rates of like, are the animals happy is how much they procreate, how, how many, uh, babies they end up having, uh, per, you know, animal and Disney's animal kingdom, at least at that time was like one of the top in the world of that, uh, showing that they, they're happy. Um, anyways, uh, this series is a Nat Geo series where each episode is taking you into like a part of that world and 
concentrating on like you get to like it's really cute you get to like meet these animals and learn about them you get to learn about young gus the hippo that was just born a baby gorilla named grace uh there's a shark that accidentally ate an almond that someone threw into the tank because people are evil and bad uh and needs an operation to remove it so there's there's like you know there is some dramatic situations here of like you know uh you know if someone has gotten into something that they shouldn't uh there's an elephant that's has like something in their mouth like there's some kind of like weird anomaly in their mouth and like how do doctors like even approach the elephant like in like to examine an elephant do they like you know put them to sleep like it's just an interesting process of seeing how a high-tech zoo like like uh, animal kingdom works uh they're breeding white rhinos here which is a very endangered species and there's um they they also do to have some a, a little bit of the imagineering side of things i i mean i would recommend this 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 is very light it's very enjoyable if you like like you know nat, national geographic like animal specials and stuff uh then you might enjoy this but it's it's very uh light on like the theme park side of things it's more of like kind of these animals the story of these animals and the the caretakers that are trying to care for them and uh it's 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 heartwarming it's a heartwarming uh show uh oh one last thing i forgot to put this on my list but there is a netflix tv show it's an original it's called teenage bounty hunters i watched a couple episodes of that um it's uh really funny fast it's witty uh very quippy dialogue uh there's some excellent comedic performances from the two leads. It's like, I don't know how to describe this show, but like, if you like Veronica Mars, you might want to check out Teenage Bounty Hunters. It's kind of like in the same kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess category as that. So that that is on Netflix right now. It's called Teenage Bounty Hunters. So, uh, Brad, what have you been watching? Uh, well, I finally joined everybody else and I watched Class Action Park. So, uh, I'll keep it keep it brief, but um, I pretty much agree with what everybody else says. Like this, the documentary has this vibe where it's uh, you know fun and just crazy to watch all of this madness unfold in this extremely dangerous theme park, and then it gets a little bit more serious, and you start to kind of hate the fact that the park existed, and it feels just a little bit weird. Um, but if there's one thing that I loved about the documentary the whole way through, it was Chris Gethard, who was just you know he, obviously he's he's a voice of reason, but he's also just like because he actually went there and grew up and going to this, this place, he's like mostly in awe of it. And the way he talks about it is just so nonchalantly about the insanity there. And even towards the end, he's just like, he's just like, yeah, you know, it was nuts. And like, well, whatever, it was its own thing and da da da. And so it's, uh, it's, it's enjoyable, even though it takes uh, definitely a darker turn towards the end. Um, and then I was on a documentary kick in general this week. I also watched uh, making waves, the art of cinematic sound. And this is available on Amazon Prime right now, and it's a uh, fascinating look into um, basically how sound works and has evolved and is created for movies, ranging from uh, all of the dialogue you hear in movies to sound effects, uh, Foley, which is more you know in-depth basic sound effects of like feet walking on the ground and water splashes and just the, all the subtle sounds you don't really think about. Uh, that need to be created manually uh, in a movie because they're not always picked up by the mic. 
and then also the the soundtrack and the score and it's um it's just a really great breakdown of the um an abridged general history of how sound has evolved throughout the history of cinema um and then it has this nice breakdown of well, basically how all the different facets of sound come together uh in the movie and it talks to filmmakers like steven spielberg and uh, George Lucas, and then also famous sound designers like Walter Murch, who worked on uh, The Godfather and The Conversation, and Ben Burt uh, from Star Wars, and Gary Rydstrom from Saving Private Ryan and um, Jurassic Park. And then it, it has just a, um, a plethora of other professional sound designers who praise each other's work and talk about the different innovations in it and um, give you like a, a glimpse into like some of the secrets about how certain sounds are created for movies. Uh, like one of the things I had no idea of is that the sound for the jets in Top Gun were created using manipulated roars of lions and tigers, sometimes played like in reverse and, and whatnot. And because they said that when they tried to record the sounds of real jets as loud as they are, they didn't sound cool enough and they kind of sounded wimpy. So they had to figure out a, a way to make them actually seem like they were you know, flying at these breakneck speeds sound-wise. And, like, when they they spin out of control and you know, do uh, barrel rolls and whatnot. So um, it's it's fairly basic in its, its approach to sound. Like, if you're a cinephile, there's, there maybe isn't a lot to learn about it, but it's still cool and interesting just to hear uh, the way all these prof- professional sound designers talk about their their craft and get some insights into how certain things, things are done. One of the ones that I never even really thought about, even though it's such a basic thing, like, uh, a lot of people know what ADR is, um, automated dialogue replacement, where they have the actors come in in post-production to re-record lines that maybe didn't get picked up right on set because there was wind or some kind of loud noise or they just couldn't hear it well enough. But I never thought about the idea of uh, group ADR, which is how, um, where they bring in like big groups of what are basically extras um, to do things like chanting in in parades and like crowd scenes and stuff like that and they have footage of um a a crowd that they use to do chants during protests that were shown uh in the movie argo and they're just standing in the middle of a backlot city set um with you know people with mics doing and telling them what what to shout and chant and everything so it's a it's a pretty cool glimpse at just the, the world of sound in movies by the way i've always wondered why is adr called adr because like there seems to be nothing automated about that process. I don't know. I've thought the same thing, and I've, and I've never had a thought beyond it to be like, oh, I'll go look that up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they don't get into that. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't explain why it's called that. They just mention what, what ADR is. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what else have you been watching? Uh, and then I also watched The Social Dilemma, um, which is has been buzzed about online recently. Uh, and it's a documentary that looks at um, how social media – and the technology behind it is designed to keep us engaged on the internet and essentially addicted in the way that like a, a drug does. Um, it's, it doesn't really introduce any new concepts or facts that I, I didn't know about. And that, and I don't, I don't mean that to sound arrogant. And I think it's mostly just because I spend my, my job on the internet all day. And so I'm always reading things um, in, ad- in addition to movie news and whatnot, just stuff that comes across, you know, my, my desk through news feeds. And uh, there's a lot of tech news that comes out out there when you're spending all day on the Internet at work. So it's um, it, it provides some like interesting, interesting, I guess, technological details as to how certain apps or like the um, the 
I guess you could say marketing or um, whatever behind these apps are are designed to you know keep users interested and engaged and make sure that they want to come back and that they keep looking at their screens. But it's just not anything that is revelatory, and it's it's almost like a thing where they say, "Hey, look, here's a problem," but then they have no solutions that they offer to try and help it. And you could say that that's part of the the point is they're showing like this is happening. No one's really doing anything to stop it. There aren't really many ideas except, hey, get off your phone and don't use social media um, as much. But it's the one thing that really takes away from it even more is that in addition to interviews with all these people who used to work at like Instagram and Google and Facebook and Twitter and all this stuff, they have these dramatizations uh, in between where it show like basically illustrates, you know, the way people treat their phones and like how they're constantly checking them. And then they, it has this personification of like the this technology that exists within social media apps played by Vincent Kartizer. And it's like three different computer programs sitting at this like uh, computer hub that looks like it's from a, a futuristic movie. And like they're talking about, oh, let's throw a let's throw a notification at him and get him get him here so we can get him back on the screen. And it's like, oh, time to time to send him a text message. And it makes it all feel like this after school special that was created in the early 2000s for people who maybe needed to have like the internet explained to them and how it worked. <laughs> um, so it's just it's really, really cheesy in that way. And so it's just um, I, I was really disappointed, especially after hearing so many people like, oh, this is, you know, fascinating and scary. And it's like, yeah, but you don't know this. Like, like this is this, this is why <laughs> you're on your phone. And this is why you're talking about this documentary on social media, you know. So, yeah, I I can't really recommend Social Dilemma. So, is this a movie or show? It's a documentary, it's a, docu- a feature documentary. Feature documentary. Has this changed the way you use social media in any way? Uh, no, not not at all, <laughs> uh, not in the least. And it, like because like it's one thing too is like I know that I probably spend more time on my phone than I need to, but it's 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 not something that I'm like overly concerned about, and p- partially it's because of just the the requirements of my job of like checking Twitter and seeing, seeing the news and stuff like that. So I, I try to check out when I can, you know, when I get the opportunity. Um, but yeah, it, it hasn't really changed any, anything for me. And it's, it's funny because like some people talked about, Oh, I need to get off social media. And then like a few days, days later, they're just back on Instagram, Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, does anybody here use like the screen time app that's built into the iPhone? Because it's actually kind of interesting. Like you can see what apps you're using, how many, how much time you're using each day, and you can actually like put a cap on it. So you could go to like Twitter and like be like, I only want to use Twitter, you know, thirty minutes a day, and it will like lock you out of the app after that thirty minutes. The only time I, I, I use the Screen Time app is when it guilts me into how much screen time I've been using every week when I get the <laughs> weekly updates. Yeah, and I look at it, I'm like, oh, whoops, guess I should do something about that, and then I don't. <laughs> Also, okay. if uh, I have a question with that too, because I've never tried to like lock myself out of an app before, like to get away from overusing it or anything. But isn't there just a way around it? Like, can't you always just like unlock it? Yeah, I think if you add a limit, then I don't know. I know you get a, uh, like a. I've I've not put any of the limits, but I know you get a notification that appears five minutes before the limit's reached. And I'm guessing you just got to enter your like iCloud password or something. Yeah, so- <laughs> it just becomes annoying to get in there. So, I, I guess it's it's more of a reminder, Brad. It's not like 
like whoa man you just spent three hours on twitter we're like oh shit <laughs> yeah yeah anyways uh hd what have you been watching i've been watching i'm thinking of ending things the new movie from charlie kaufman i was trying to think of how to describe it and it's, it's like the genre is like a thriller, but I don't know if I would exactly describe it as that. Um, and I really liked it. Uh, I would have, I feel like I have trouble conveying exactly why I liked it though, because it's this really hypnotic, mesmerizing um, experience that, and like a, a fascinating practice in solipsism. But I, and I, I've, I feel like at times it's punishing and other times it's very perplexing. But regardless, I found myself incredibly just uh, hypnotized by it and affected by it. And um, I, I'm i going to plug Chris's review of this because I feel like he de- delves into it in a way that I can't really put into words. But it's um, his review is on Slash Film and he he wrote a really great review of I'm Thinking of Any Things. And I, I absolutely adored... First of all, the performances in this, uh, Jesse Buckley is um, amazing, uh, as is Jesse Plemons. And Tony Collette, as always, just gives this really unhinged, uh, slightly frightening performance. And David Thewlis is great as well. And I, I, I love how this film plays with uh, your, not only your expectations, but the, the reality that you experience and that these characters experience and how it's forever shifting and I have a read on it that I like that I like, and I don't know if it's the same read that everyone else has, but I don't want to go into it for fear of spoilers. I don't know if you can spoil this movie, but um, I yeah, <laughs> that's my long-winded way of saying I liked I'm thinking of ending things. Um, and I can see why it's also a movie that I know will be incredibly polarizing. I watched it with a group of people who absolutely despised it, and I understand why because it it kind of traffics in the same sort of pretentious artistry that Charlie Kaufman has often been known for. And while I like acknowledge that and I kind of see the strings and why it would not appeal to people, and in a lot of cases it wouldn't appeal to me, but I just, I really, I found myself really liking and really thinking about, um, I'm thinking of ending things, just kind of has stayed on my mind for quite a bit. So that's, I'm thinking of ending things. On Netflix, I hope my like my short <laughs> rambling review of it is a enough of a recommendation. Um, <laughs> I, I, I feel like you're you, like the the last five minutes you're conflicted trying to describe what this movie is. It, it could just be summed up in a, it's a Charlie Kaufman. movie. It's a Charlie Kaufman movie, exactly. <laughs> if you like Charlie Kaufman movies, you will like this movie. If you don't like his movies, you won't like it. So. That's the best recommendation I can give. Um, Chris, I feel like, uh, is anything I've said, does that any, uh, do you agree with any of it or does it make any sense to you? I think you you did the best job you could <laughs> trying to explain this very strange movie. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's on Netflix. Uh, another thing I watched is Lover's Rock. It's the first film in the New York Film Festival virtual festival that I've watched and this is the uh, Steve McQueen uh, film. It's also the first film in his five film anthology Small Acts which is a sort of portrait of London's West Indian community uh, in um, between the 19 
1960s to 1980s. And uh, I really loved Lover's Rock. It's this one hour film. It's only like an hour and 10 minutes long. And it's basically takes place over the course of one night in a one house party. Uh, house parties, which were common back in the 80s uh, for, for the people of color who lived in, in London because they were often shut out of nightclubs and would throw these house parties that uh, would require like a small admission fee and they would you know, cook goat curry and play reggae music and a certain genre of music called lover's rock, which is the name for the sort of romantic reggae subgenre that they would often dance to. And this whole movie is just like a, a really um, sumptuous mood piece that is really captures the experience of being in a house party because the camera just kind of wanders around and there's no real clear cut narrative. You just kind of touch base with a bunch of characters that you get to know and love throughout the film. And it really is just feeling like you're embedded and, um, adrift in this experience and um it's it's really a beautifully shot film it reminds me of a Wong Kar Wai film um very in the mood for love at some points and um it has this just warm energy to it that uh feels at once you know very realistic I feel like I've been to a party like this before but also very dreamlike and a very a nice portrait of a time, a nice, a nice snapshot of time that is very rarely depicted on screen. So that's Lovers Rock. It's screening at the virtual New York Film Festival as well as I think some drive-in theaters. And um, it's the first in the Small Acts Anthology and I, it's, it's great. Recommend it. Um, and last thing I watched is Death Becomes Her. This is kind of a random one. My roommate and I were just kind of looking for a movie to watch one night. And um, we had not seen Death Becomes Her before, which is the Robert Zemeckis 1992 black comedy starring Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn as two aging divas uh, who basically drink a potion, an elixir of life that keeps them young forever, uh, even after death. And it's... I. I did not expect this movie to be quite so gloriously camp as it was. I mean, I kind of expected it because it is a cult classic, especially among the LGBT community. But I guess it's something that I didn't I didn't think that Robert Zemeckis had in him. I mean, he he's he's been able to play with comedy and camp before, but this is just so over the top and so um so yeah, so camp and so wacky that it's just it, it was a really fun watch it's not a great movie per se but it really is fun watching Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep try to outvamp each other and uh the various um effects that Zemeckis plays with in this film I think this is kind of the beginning or the beginnings of his uh sometimes prioritizing technology over <laughs> filmmaking but over story but he, he has a lot of fun with it and I think that it really is buoyed by it's elevated by the fact that uh, Meryl and Goldie are just having a ball and Bruce Willis is just kind of there playing very against type as this mousy doctor who is caught in their machinations. So it's a lot of fun. And that's streaming on HBO Max. Yeah, I haven't seen this movie in many years. I remember Kevin Klein was originally supposed to play that role that uh, was played by him. And I also remember when this came out, a lot of people were saying that this like felt like an extended episode of like tales from the crypt which am i right chris i feel like you would know this did robert zemeckis produce 
the remake of Tales from the Crypt? Yeah, he was one of the executive producers, him and, and Walter Hill and a bunch of people. I can't remember all their names, but I do remember he was one of them. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this film also went under, like, it was one of those things where they test screened it for audiences. And I think, like, it had, like, a major, major, like, reworking because, like, Tracy Allman uh, is in the trailer for the movie. But I don't think she's in the movie. Actually, you you just saw the movie. Is Tracy Allman in the movie? I don't think she is. No, I don't think so. Not that I remember. I didn't even know that she was uh, in this movie. So, yeah. Yeah, apparently I had bad test screenings and they like did a major rework of it. So I'm, you know, release the death becomes her Zemeckis director's cut, right? Hashtag the Tracy Allman cut. Tracy Allman cut, yeah. Uh, Chris, before we get to what you've been watching, what, what do you think of death becomes her? Because I feel like that might actually, be something you have opinions on. I actually just rewatched this recently with my oh. wife because I don't think she had ever seen it. And uh, it's fun. It's very over the top. Um, some of the effects, which were, you know, cutting edge at the time don't look as great today but oh, do they not because i remember it looking so cool like you could see through her body and then like... i mean it's very anytime they do something that's like digital it's very <sighs> obviously digital but the makeup of it is still great but it's a fun movie i, I like it a lot I, I like uh you know it's 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 fun <laughs> it's, <laughs> it, it has some problems but it's it's a very entertaining film yeah uh, what else have you been watching this week, Chris? Uh, I watched Beetlejuice because uh, there's a new 4K Blu-ray release of that. So I watched that. And um, guys, Beetlejuice, pretty good movie. It it holds up. It's fun. I will say this, that I, I hadn't seen it since I was younger. And even though I know it's the point of his performance, Michael Keaton's performance as Beetlejuice is really annoying and i know that's like that's the point of the character like he's supposed to be this gross annoying ghost but man he's really going for it and i'm glad his you know he's really not in the movie a lot and i'm I'm glad for that because i feel like if he were in the movie anymore it would be insufferable just because what he's doing is so broad and over the top and uh, you know again i get it that's the point of that character but it really starts to wear you down after a while of him just being like, ah, bad. He's just like constantly <laughs> just making sounds. And it's just like, ah, oh my God, you're, you're killing me. Michael Keaton. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, Beetlejuice still fun, but Michael Keaton, maybe dial it down a notch or two. If you're, that, if you're that, listening to this, um, <laughs> that, that is, a, that is a good point. Like, I wonder if I would enjoy Beetlejuice as much as I, did if i saw for the first time you know at the age of like 35 rather than whenever i saw it like 10 or yeah i'm like if i had just seen this now as an adult i'd probably be like that was okay but man i wish beetlejuice would shut up so (laughs) i I don't i don't know if i'm like alone in that thought or what but you know not to say i don't like the movie i still like it you know i love the style it's it's a lot of fun Renata Ryder is great in it Uh, Catherine o'hara is great in it you know that that Danny Elfman soundtrack still holds up. There's so much to like about that movie, but uh, I, I do think it's, you know, I think Beetlejuice himself is the worst part of Beetlejuice. So that's, that's, the, the, wow. that's, that's preposterous. <laughs> that's, this, this is the most contrarian thing, you, thing you've ever said. I think, <laughs> listen, I just watched the movie. This is how I feel. I'm not like just saying it. This it's it's literally... called Beetlejuice. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. I mean, you know, what is that? You know, 
He's barely in the movie. I think he's in the movie for like 15 minutes. It's really about Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis's character. Michael Keaton is so funny in that movie, and like I, I know you understand that like the point is for him to be obnoxious, but he's hilarious in that in that movie. I I love every every single scene he's in. Chris, I need you to write a piece for Slashfilm.com. No, no, no. I'm not gonna. I don't. I don't need this hassle. I don't need to be attacked for my my brave opinions uh, any more than I am right now. <laughs> okay uh what else have you been watching uh i watched uh fargo season four um because i reviewed it and the review is up on slash com. and i don't know man i i feel like every time i watch fargo the tv show i didn't watch season three at all i watched the first two seasons and i just i feel like i'm missing something because every time i watch this show it's you know it's loaded with all these Coen Brothers references, and all I think is, man, I'd rather be watching a Coen Brothers movie than this, just because it just seems like Noah Hawley and his team—they just like, all right, let's just reference all this stuff we saw in Coen Brothers movies without putting entirely too much thought into it, and it just it just bothers me a little bit. But uh, you know, th- there's still a lot to enjoy this season. Um, Jesse Buckley, who was also in, I'm thinking, Ending Things, is in this season, and she's great. Uh, Chris Rock is pretty good. I, you know, I don't think Chris Rock is like a great actor. He doesn't have a lot of range, but he's very good when, you know, he gets to, uh, sort of just play within his, his range and he gets to do that here. Um, it looks great. Like visually it's great, but there's, there's just a lot of characters this season. Like there's way too many characters and it starts to bog the show down a lot. Like it's, it's, you know, initially about this mob war, but then it starts introducing all this other stuff. Like there's a serial killer and there's a ghost and there's uh, these um, lesbian bank robbers. And uh, there's this, they just keep introducing all these different really quirky characters. And it starts to really, you almost need like a, like a, a, a flow chart to keep track of what the hell is going on this season. And, uh, I don't know. Like I, I just, I, you know, I know people love this show and I'm in the minority here and I don't think it's a bad show. I just feel like every time I watch it, it just makes me want to just watch the Coen brothers. Cause they're, they're much better at doing this than the show. Yeah. And you saying that worries me because you got to see them back to back. Not like us, uh, normal you people can't even imagine <laughs> watching this like weekly. Cause even watching it in a, in a binge format, like I did, I was still like, Oh my God, why are there so many things going on so you might want to wait until the whole thing airs and then binge it i don't know i remember when the show was first announced i was like this is a bad idea this is like a horrible idea and i ended up watching the the first episode of the first season i just like fell in love like that first season with billy bob thornton and martin freeman is amazing it's my favorite season of this show i know a lot of people like i think season two the best so I'm, I'm wondering chris where do you place this like how does this compare to the previous seasons um like i said i didn't watch season three but i do think season two is the better season just because i feel like the cast is a little better and the storyline is a little better but i guess i would do like based on the seasons i've seen it would be two one and then this and so again mm-hmm. so like I, you know i don't i don't know where season three falls because i didn't watch it okay uh let's move on ben what have you been watching I watched the uh, the live read of The Princess Bride. I don't know if you guys saw this. Um, there was a big, it was trending on social media. It was a whole big thing. But uh, the event was organized by the Wisconsin Democrats, and it raised 
almost $4.3 million for Joe Biden's presidential campaign in that state, which is an incredibly important state to the uh, upcoming election. And uh, like the, you know, there, there have been Princess Bride live reads before. I actually saw one that uh, Jason Reitman, um, I guess, put together for uh, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. This was like probably a decade ago or something, 2011, maybe. Um, and it had a bunch of other people like reading the famous roles. But this live read actually got together uh, the cast from the movie to read all of their roles and and basically go through the entire script again. So Rob Reiner, who directed the movie, uh, read the role of the grandfather. And before it started, he explained that basically every person from the movie who is still alive it would, would be participating in this live read. Uh, it was very weird, though, because immediately as the as the uh, the live read begins, um, you know, it, it starts with Rob Reiner, the grandfather, going into the room of this little boy who in the movie was played by Fred Savage and Fred Savage was not there. And Fred Savage is very much alive. So I don't know why he wasn't there. Uh, he was the only person that I could tell from the original cast that um, that was alive and did not participate in this. I don't know if he had a scheduling conflict or what, but it was weird that like nobody ever mentioned him or why he wasn't there so i don't know what that so i think he vaguely uh mentioned mentioned this i mean actually not even really vaguely fairly directly on his instagram because it sounds like the live read might have taken place on uh ben savage's birthday and uh, his younger brother and he was turning 40 because he posted on instagram i just i just remember this uh he said want to feel old my baby brother is 40 had so much fun celebrating with him last night and while i'm always proud to be part of the princess bride family sometimes real life family comes first Okay. All right. Well, there's that mystery solved. Uh, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that Fred Savage is okay. I was, I was more worried about him there for a minute. Um, Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things played his character in in this live read. Um, and it was great, man. It was it was so much fun. I, you guys know how much I love this movie. And it was it was really wonderful hearing people like Wallace Shawn, you know, recite all these memorable and, and terrific lines. And you could tell that everybody was really happy to be there. Like Billy Crystal showed up and Robin Wright, you know, who... Uh, has has gone through such a, a, a transformation in in her career um, and and you know made a name for herself again as in in her House of Cards role, which is really icy and steely and and ruthless. Um, you know, seeing her, uh, you know, just sit there and smile as as she plays scenes with Carrie Elways and and um, you know goes back to this movie that really like kickstarted her film career was a lot of fun. But uh, Mandy Patinkin was the absolute standout in this. He was incredible. It was so much fun to sit there and watch him because he was like, everybody was into it. um, But he was into it, man. Like he, (laughs) he was staring, he was acting as if his life depended on it, which was like so incredible to see. And um, you know, a lot of these, these lively kind of things or, or reunion shows, um, you know, you can tell that people are, are happy to be there, but like, it's almost like you can feel a ticking clock where they're just like waiting to be done with this thing so they can move on with their lives. And watching this, it was like, this was Mandy Patinkin's life. If he did not deliver this next line in, you know, the most um, incredible way possible, then his life would be over. It was like, he was, he was so invested and it was uh, it, it just made me love him even more. He actually had a um, a replica of the sword that his character has, and he pulled it out. And he was uh, he would he would like his physicality during this live read, which was just um, really really fun to watch. So if you guys, uh, I'm not sure if anybody like ripped the whole thing because it was really supposed to be like a one time thing. 
if anybody ripped the whole thing and put it on YouTube or whatever, um, I know some clips were circulating on, on Twitter and stuff. So I, if you miss this and want to see it, try to search and see if you can find some of it because it, it's definitely um, <laughs> worth watching and, and so fun to see these these actors, uh, you know, revisit these um, famous roles all these years later. Hey, Ben, you got to yeah. go big or go home. So, I mean, yeah, oh, Mandy's yeah. just bringing it. Oh yeah, he brought he brought it all right. Um, okay, so I also watched the journey of Natty Gan. Has anyone here ever seen or even heard of this movie? Because I've never heard of this before. No, nobody. Oh wow. Okay. Wait, uh, I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it only because I know the the girl in it is. Patton Oswalt's wife now. That's yes, the only yeah. reason I know about. I am actually Yeah. Uh, it stars Meredith Salinger, who I did not even know was an actress. Um, but uh, this movie is streaming on Disney Plus right now. And it's definitely one of those films that I would have loved as a kid and I just missed. Um, you know, it's one of those sort of, it's like, I think I'm don't remember exactly what year it came out uh 1985 so it, it it almost feels like more like a 90s uh disney movie it's sort of in the vein of homeward bound but with humans instead of animals so the premise is um meredith salinger plays this this uh, tomboy girl who is living in chicago with her dad who's played by ray wise from twin peaks and um the great depression is going on and they're living in chicago and things are a little tight and he the dad is looking for work and he finds a job as a lumberjack in washington and he has to take the job because it's like a a dire situation where he, he has to leave that afternoon and the daughter is, you know, off playing with her friends or something. And so he has to leave the, the state basically like drop everything and just go to take this job all the way across the country. And he leaves his daughter behind and says like, you know, as soon as I get enough money, I'll send for you. And she finds herself um, under the care of this really nasty woman and, and uh basically um, decides to just go out on her own and try to travel the country to find him, to reunite with her dad. So it's a real, you know, it's like a train hopping adventure. There's, it's sort of like um, almost like an episodic uh, where she goes for a little bit and gets into some trouble and, and skirmishes and all that. And then sort of like ekes out and, and escapes and <laughs> jumps back on a, a different train and, you know, keeps heading westward so um yeah it's you know it's a fun little movie i i had never seen it before uh didn't really know anything about it but um if you're looking for a light-hearted uh 90s disney movie uh you, you could definitely do worse than the journey of natty gan it also has one of the cutest dogs in movie history in the first i don't know 20 or 30 minutes of the movie so uh if you're looking for a dose of heartwarming awe and you want to see a really 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 cute dog Check out the journey of Natty Gann on Disney Plus. I have to ask you, what brought you to this movie? Uh, well, my wife listens to My Favorite Murder, which is a very oh, popular yeah. podcast, and I think they mentioned it there. I, I don't recall exactly what the context was, um, but she had heard of it. We we're scrolling through looking for something to watch on Disney Plus, and she was like, "Oh, I, I heard about that movie, and I think it. I think they referenced it or something on that podcast." And um, and like. Chris was saying, you know, it has Meredith Salinger in it. This was like her first leading role uh, in a movie. And um, yeah, I, I didn't know about that. So we just decided, hey, yeah, let's let's do it. We were looking for something sort of in that vein. So um, yeah, fun little movie. But by the way, uh, here's, a, here's a bit of trivia. Meredith Salinger, she appeared in the Dwayne Johnson version of Escape from Witch Mountain. And she was like a, a reporter. And um, her name in that movie was Natalie Gann. 
Ah, so it's yeah. like a, a reference, a, a fake sequel or something. That's, yeah, that's maybe. Fun. I don't know. The Disney cinematic universe. Yeah. Or wait, is this even a Disney? I guess it is a Disney movie. Right? Yeah, yeah. And the, the dog in this is from The Thing and White Fang. So, yeah. well, there's a there's a uh, like sort of a wolf dog that she spends most of the movie with, and that's not the dog I'm talking about. There's like a puppy yeah, yeah. in the first half of the movie, and that one is um. Oh my god, it's. Like Chris, I, I know you love dogs on film. I really think you should just watch <laughs> just like the first few minutes of this movie to see this puppy because yeah, but it will man, you don't understand how my diseased brain works because the minute I watch it, I'm going to think this movie's old, so that dog is now dead, so Aww. I can't watch the movie. <laughs> okay. All right, <laughs> fair enough. Never. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, okay, so um, speaking of death. 50 years ago today, Jimi Hendrix died. And um, so that was a a weird coincidence because earlier this week, I watched a movie called Jimi Hendrix, uh, which is a documentary that came out in 1973, which is only three years after he died. Um, And I thought that was weird because the the closest, um, I guess, death to movie <laughs> ratio or whatever that I could remember about a, a an artist like this was um, the Amy Winehouse documentary. And there were four years between when she died and when that documentary came out about her, but uh, only three years between uh, Hendrix's death and this documentary, which um, makes it feel, you know, all the observations and stuff about him feel especially fresh. Um, it was on Turner Classic Movies. I don't think it's streaming anywhere. So I apologize for that. But um, I, I just know of him as sort of like an icon. I don't, you know, I, I don't really know much about or didn't really know much about his personal life or um, even how he came to to be. I just sort of know him as like, you know, he's widely considered the greatest rock guitarist to ever live. Um, and uh, this movie is it's an interesting documentary because it, it has 12 songs of his that they play, I think, in full. And it intercuts those songs with interviews with uh, his contemporaries, people like Little Richard and Mick Jagger and Eric Clapton, and then like people who knew him really well, his girlfriend, his father. Um, and it, it sort of traces, uh, you know, his his childhood a little bit, just like his, um, you know, how he came to, to start playing the guitar and how he taught himself. And he was left-handed and basically like put the strings on the guitar backwards instead of, uh, you know, getting a left-handed, uh, a guitar that's like specifically made for, for left-handed players. Um, and just, you know, detailing his artistry and, and his rise to fame in this really, really short period of time in the late sixties. Um, and it was a, it's a, a fun movie. I mean, as fun as, as a, a talking head documentary like this can be because the music is so good and cutting in those 12 songs, is just like, you get this concert and then you get all these people, you know, it's crazy to see how young Eric Clapton and Mick Jagger were. They almost like don't even look like themselves because they're so young. Um, you know, hearing, uh, these like firsthand accounts from people who spent a lot of time with Hendrix and, and, um, you know, got to watch him play in, in this uh, incredible period of music history. So, uh, the documentary is just called Jimi Hendrix and it came out in 1973. So if you're interested in finding that, I'm, I mean, I, like I said, it's not streaming right now, but maybe it, it will be at some point. So, uh, you might, and maybe it'll be playing again on, on Turner classic movies or something. So if you're interested, you can maybe keep your eye out for it there. And then finally, I want to recommend this movie to all of you guys. It's called Unpregnant. And I, the only reason I knew about this was because when HBO Max was first announced, I had to write up an article that, that talked about all of the original projects that were coming to HBO Max. And this was one of them. It was a movie 
that is directed by, written and directed by Rachel Lee Goldenberg, and it stars Haley Lou Richardson and Barbie Ferreira. And uh, I didn't really know much about it before then. I, I, I wrote that article, you know, months ago before HBO Max launched, and then I have yet to see, I haven't seen a trailer or anything for it. I think they one must have been released, but I just missed it. And this movie started streaming on HBO Max on September 10th. So it's been out for yeah a little bit over a week now. And holy crap, this is one of my favorite movies of the year so far. It's, it's really, really great. So um, earlier this year, there was a film called Never Rarely, Sometimes Always that was this... Uh, sort of harrowing depiction of a young girl who's forced to cross the country to have an abortion because of these like backwards ass archaic laws. Um, and that was a really, really well-made movie, but Unpregnant takes that similar premise and turns it into a road trip comedy, which is way easier to swallow and is a lot more fun to watch. So, um, you know, it doesn't feel like uh, as important, I guess, uh, quote unquote important. But man, this is such a great movie. If you liked Booksmart, you will absolutely dig this film. And I, I have not come across a person yet who saw Booksmart and, and was like, nah, I don't really, I didn't really care for that. So um, yeah, I, I, I think Unpregnant is getting buried because I have not seen a lot of conversation about it. Um, and I just want to put it on everybody's radar. It is so, so good. Um, Haley Richardson and Barbie Ferreira are just like tremendous in this movie. They're, they're both so, um, so much fun to watch. And uh, for the, you know, potentially heavy subject matter, I think it, the movie does a, a really good job of walking this line between um, addressing the, how messed up this whole situation is and, and the laws that are in place to, to make situations like this uh, very real for young women in this country. And then also having it be a really, really fun sort of coming of age kind of uh, uh, road trip comedy. So it's called Unpregnant. It's on HBO Max. Definitely check it out. You know, I was I was browsing HBO Max and I came across this and I almost watched it because it looked like just from like the still and stuff. I was like, oh, this might be something I would like. But I think I like did. I did the thing that I do that I shouldn't do where I searched the movie on Rotten Tomatoes, which is actually getting a good. It's like 87 percent on the tomato meter. But then I saw like 34 percent on the audience score. But now it makes sense now that I know what the movie's about because I actually didn't even know the the storyline this is probably politically motivated uh you know yeah. audiencing yeah. audience yeah. spiking not pay attention to the ron tomatoes audience score anymore because you know how easily it can be <laughs> maneuvered and manipulated yeah it, you know what but this is, that's not true with theatrical releases now but yes true with uh stuff like this so yeah i'm gonna have to give this a try because uh it looked like something i might enjoy just from like you know the quick uh glimpse that they show on hbo max i just want to chime in and say i did watch the trailer for this and i was uh intrigued because it all i also made the connection to never some never rarely oh gosh <laughs> never, yeah, never rarely, rarely sometimes, sometimes always, always. <laughs> and i was like oh it's like a comedic version of it and i love love Haley richardson and everything she's in uh i didn't watch it yet it's on my list um but i just want to chime in and say Haley richardson is a star and she deserves to be the next big thing yes <laughs> I, I also want to say that, um, you know, because we're bringing up uh, HBO Max, I'm still watching that show, The Vow, the documentary series about Nexium, the the sex cult that uh, had people from Hollywood in it. Uh, I think I'm like four or five episodes in. I'm really enjoying this. I'm not seeing enough people talking about this. And it, it's amazing what kind of footage and stuff, because they literally had um that guy, that documentary filmmaker that did uh, What the Bleep do you know you know or whatever that movie is 
he became involved in this like 13 years ago and he's probably a maniac because he records all his uh phone conversations and he was like doing documentaries on like this uh this whole organization so there's like just so much footage it's like it's as if you're getting i mean this i don't know I don't want to compare this to Scientology, but it like I feel like a lot of the Scientology docs you see, it's a lot of like talking heads telling you the stories and you get like the one clip of Tom Cruise from that that leaked out of that one ceremony. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't really get a glimpse inside the organization. And like, I, I don't know. I, I really think if Scientology is something that like fascinates you, if you like like cults and how, how does this happen? How do people get sucked in? Uh, I do want to recommend The Vow on HBO. It might just be on normal HBO, but I'm watching on HBO Max. So, yeah. Um, let's move on to what we've been eating. I've been, you know, I wasn't going to bring this up because I usually don't bring up like local places. But I know in the past we talked about Hauling Rays, which is this uh, Nashville hut chicken place that's in downtown Los Angeles. Before the pandemic, it had you know, lines around the block. Like you had to wait like three, four hours to get a chicken sandwich from this place. And I venture to say it's actually worth it. Uh, during the pandemic, they're actually doing, uh, they're not open to walk-ins. I think at this time they're still doing Postmates. Does, they don't Postmate to my area. I think I talked in the previous episode of how a few times I've actually driven to a parking lot, like in between my home and Howling Rays just to get you know, it delivered to our car and then drive home to eat it. Uh, but I, I recently found this other like fried Nashville hot chicken place in Los Angeles. And I know a lot of people listening to this podcast are actually in Hollywood and in LA. So I wanted to put this on people's radar because I have not heard of this place uh, from anywhere actually. Uh, and it's called a uh, poultry gram. I'm, I'm looking it up on my phone as we uh, I think there's two locations. There's one that is in Brea and then there's another that's in Hollywood. Um, and basically they just do uh, Nashville hot fried chicken sandwiches and they also do some fries and uh, you can get them as tenders as well. But it's the closest I've seen to Howling Rays in terms of like the, the the way that it's seasoned uh the the way how spicy it is um i'm i'm really really i i, I think i've ordered this like three or four times in the last month so i just wanted to put that on the on your radar if you're in la check out poultry gram and that's available on postmates in my area so uh yeah so that's it for me but uh brad what have you been eating uh so since we had a glitch last time i'm gonna actually talk about some of the things i was meant to talk about uh last week and so uh this is a repeat for everybody else to just ignore in the podcast you're like oh brad's talking about his stupid food again um but i i tried uh two new dunkin donut cereals um they're inspired by their coffee drinks there's mocha latte and caramel macchiato and the smell of the cereals is much stronger than the taste on both of them um the cereal on the mocha latte one doesn't really have much of a coffee taste it's just more like a a vague coffee taste uh, in the form of cocoa puffs, essentially with some marshmallow sprinkled in. Um, But it does uh, make the milk taste like iced coffee, which is really good. And then the caramel macchiato cereal, that cereal actually does have a a stronger flavor, mostly because of the caramel uh, aspect to it. And uh, yeah, so their um, mocha latte one's okay. Caramel macchiato one is 
uh, really good. So if you're a coffee fan and maybe you want to mix it up with a cereal, they're worth uh, trying out. At least the caramel macchiato one is. And then um, I tried, I finally got around to trying the two other Biscoff sandwich cookie um, styles, as you could say, because uh, before my local Walmart only ever got the Biscoff cream ones. Um, so it was double the Biscoff, double the fun. But they also have um, chocolate cream and vanilla cream. And I finally found them at a, a different Walmart when I was out in Colorado with my girlfriend recently visiting some of her family. And the uh, as I expected, the chocolate one is my favorite one. Uh, the vanilla cream one is still pretty good. And it's just, I love the Biscoff cookies and it's nice to mix it up and have them with um, some, you know, typical cookie sandwich cream. And then there's also these two, um, well, there's actually three Biscoff ice creams. Um, and my girlfriend and I tried two of them. Uh, we didn't get the salted caramel one because we're just not super big salted caramel fans. But we did get the regular Biscoff uh, flavored ice cream. And then there's this uh, chocolate brownie Biscoff ice cream. And they both have, um, the, the main Biscoff one is the best one just because it has tons of Biscoff cookie ch- uh, chunks and swirls in it. And the chocolate one is pretty good because it's chocolate ice cream, um, but it's not quite as abundant with the uh, the Biscoff flavor. It focuses a little bit more on like um, just a brownie flavor. So I'm not really sure why they went with a Biscoff ice cream for that that kind. But it's uh, it's also, you know, just good if you like chocolate ice cream. And then there's a new Mountain Dew flavor uh, for Halloween season. It's the second iteration of the Voodoo uh flavor which they released one last year as a mystery flavor and it turned out to be candy corn but it tasted kind of like skittles and a lot of people i saw online trying to guess thought that that's what it was um but this year it's another mystery flavor that's their their thing now i guess for halloween and this one actually does legit taste like full-on skittles as a soda so i don't know if they're trying to trick us and they're like oh you thought last year tasted like skittles how about this one suckers um, so it's, uh, it's a little too sweet to have like often I mean, you know, any Mountain Dew is kind of like fits under that category, but this particular, because it tastes like that sugary Skittles flavor. Um, but it's, it's, it's good to at least, you know, try out. And then, uh, McDonald's has new spicy McNuggets. Um, the, these aren't your granddad's chicken McNuggets, um they're pretty good they're not quite as good as wendy's spicy nuggets which i think is like the top tier fast food spicy nuggets but they're definitely better than burger kings which are okay but not great um so yeah try try those out there apparently mcdonald's also has a new hot sauce i'm not a big hot sauce person and the spicy nuggets were spicy enough for my taste because i don't really go for super hot foods um but they're definitely uh a good alternative to the regular mcnuggets Oh, oh, Brad, yes. I, I hate to interrupt you here. Oh, no, go ahead. But I, I also tried these hut nuggets. I, for, I forgot to put this on my list. You have so much chicken uh, to talk about. Yeah. Uh, what is the sauce that comes with this? I know you didn't get it, but it's like Mighty Sauce or something. I think, yeah, is it, was it called Mighty Spicy Sauce or something like that? Something like that. It is weird because I've never really tasted a hut sauce that is like this. It's it's kind of like Asian inspired like hot sauce. So uh, I'm not sure if you, you're into that kind of thing. I, I know you say you're not into hot sauces. Yeah, it's but, not for uh, me. Yeah, uh, these are spicier than I thought they were going to be. Maybe I, I'm not sure if it was a sauce or if it was the chicken. No, that's a good point. Actually, I, I thought the same thing. They they are a little spicier than um like than the Wendy's McNuggets. They they have a little bit more of a kick to them. Yeah, but I feel like you only taste spice. There's not like a 
flavor to the chicken, if that makes sense. I mean, that's kind of like McDonald's chicken nuggets in general. It's not as if the, <laughs> it's not as if the chicken is like super well seasoned or anything. It's it's the batter and the frying that makes makes it taste good. Yeah, uh, you didn't happen to try that new meal that the at McDonald's. I didn't, and it's only because like it's it's not even really a new meal. It's just like they put some. <laughs> different different ingredients on a quarter pounder you know so like there's it's this travis scott meal apparently he there's like this signature order that he gets where it's like a double quarter pounder with cheese that also has bacon and lettuce on it because they don't normally put lettuce on their burgers except for the big mac um and then it comes with like a sprite and uh is there a pie with it too i, f- I forget but yeah I have, I have not tried that yet <laughs> Are they even promoting this? I mean, I see a lot of people on social media talking about it, but when I we went to McDonald's to order these spicy chicken McNuggets, like it, there was not like a billboard, like there was no like thing on the drive-through menu of being like try the Travis Scott. Like it felt like we were we had to ask them. They're like, "Do you have the Travis Scott meal?" Uh, like, and it felt like it was like when you go to Starbucks and you're ordering like a secret drink yeah. or something. I've seen like um, I've seen online ads for it. And I saw like a um, a small thing for I think at like I don't know if it was like a a billboard or something like that, um, not like a huge thing, but it was like almost like an aside, like Travis Scott meals. This is like, huh? Okay, whatever that is. <laughs> um, I love that. I love that it comes with Sprite because he drinks Sprite. Yeah, and it's just, it's it's a very unique thing to get Sprite, I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, so uh, I also tried a new burger at Wendy's. They have this new pretzel bacon pub cheeseburger. Uh, it comes on a pretzel bun. Uh, obviously, it comes with bacon. It also has um, onion straws on it and uh, several different kinds of cheese uh, and uh, a honey mustard um, sauce on it. And it is really, really good. This is kind of my, my jam when it comes to like what I enjoy on a burger. And it's usually not easy to get um, honey mustard on a, on a burger like this. But yeah, it's it's really, really good. You can also get it as a chicken sandwich, too, if chicken sandwiches are more uh your speed but it's um yeah very good and that's at uh at wendy's oh i'm gonna have to try that i am i'm a lover of pretzel buns i love pretzel buns and also honey mustard sauce i I usually request honey mustard to dip like my fries in which i don't think is a common thing oh you do too i do i i love honey mustard fries and it's mostly because um i one of my favorite chain restaurants is Outback Steakhouse and they have the Aussie cheese fries as an appetizer and it comes with um, a delicious honey mustard sauce. And ever since then, I've always loved having honey mustard on fries. Interesting. Um, Okay, let's move on to what we've been playing. Brad, what have you been playing this week? So uh, like Jacob mentioned last week, he started playing Tony Hawk's Pro Skater uh, 1 plus 2 or 1 and 2. And I finally purchased this and got some time to play it. And it made me feel like a 13-year-old kid again uh, around the time the, the first Tony Hawk's Pro Skater came out. It's um, a totally revamped version of the first two games with uh, all new graphics. It's, um, it's like Jacob said, it's not a remaster. They just remade the game, but with all the same levels, all the same like uh, challenges and, and puzzles that you have to solve. And what my favorite part of this is that the controls are the original controls from the early games. Because the thing that sucked about the Tony Hawk games as they went on is that the controls got more complicated after the release of uh, Skate because they made it they made skateboarding games a little bit more complex because you had to do like ollies by flip, flicking the joysticks and stuff. And it was supremely frustrating. Uh, and this is much more simple and, may, and it makes it a lot more fun 
um, for in, in my opinion. And so I uh, just to make sure, like I, I went through the tutorial on it because I hadn't played in forever, and I wanted to make sure things were pretty well uh, as well as I remembered. And so I had all the basic controls down. I, I was reminded of some things that I forgot you could do in the, the early games. Um, and it's it's just so much fun to, to play and skate around and try, try and complete all of the uh, the parks and all that stuff. I, I'm so glad that, that they, they did this. It's just a blast. And, and then mm. I've been working through Smash Brothers Ultimate on my Nintendo Switch. And I'm, I'm proud to say that I have now unlocked all of the fighters, which is very cool. And now I'm going through the tedious process of playing through each of the characters story mode, which is not even like a complex story because this is just a fighting game. It's just like a, 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 a essentially like a, a timeline, if you will, of like taking on different enemies related to your character. And it helps you unlock more stuff in the game for the uh, different game variants that there are to play. Um, so, so that's, that's been fun. I've really been really enjoying having a, a Nintendo switch. You know, I forgot that I played this, but I we played, uh, we bought The Sims because The Sims came out with that expansion pack, Journey to Batu, which oh, is yeah. uh, the Star Wars themed uh, game where you get to go to Galaxy's Edge, like your Sims go on vacation to Galaxy's Edge. But it's weird. It's not like they're going to Disney World or Disneyland. They're actually going to Galaxy's Edge and there's not like there's rides it's like they're really in the world. Uh, I have not played the Sims in like probably 20 years at this point. And, uh, we, we did a live stream of this. Uh, the Sims is annoying. <laughs> like they're, they're so needy. They, they, they like every five minutes they want to like eat. They need to go to the bathroom. All I want to do is have fun, Brad. I want to go to Savi's and build a lightsaber and like go to Oga's and like, we went to Oga's and like Kitra's person, like just fell asleep at the bar. It's just like, I don't know. <laughs> Peter, you know what the solution is. You have to create what? a torture house and kill them all in oh horrible my ways. Like we all do with the Sims. Didn't know none of you do this? I guess none of you grew up with them with the Sims as I did. That was our, our daily pastime. Once you got sick of them, you killed them all in like this horrible wow. torture house. I would often put a I would often like put a fire fireplace in there, put a bunch of fireworks all around, a pool in the middle where one of and then took the ladder away. Oh my you know, god. This is like stuff. saw level shit. <laughs> Wow! Bored in high school playing the Sims. We're getting some insights into HT. Everyone does this. I, I can promise you, everyone who played the Sims as a middle schooler or teenager. I mean, I will say that when I play Grand Theft Auto, I have very murderous tendencies of just creating absolute destruction. (laughs) So I I understand what what you're talking about. It's weird though. Like I don't think The Sims was made for a console. Like we're playing it on PlayStation, what three or four, whatever the PlayStation that's at right now. Yes, four. Um, and I think it would probably be a much better experience to do it on your computer with a mouse and a keyboard. Uh, Yeah, very like particular, very lot of um like minutia to it. Yeah, like uh, I don't know. We we couldn't figure it out. If you want to see it, I'll put a link to. The live stream that Kitra and I can, did playing. You can hook up a Sims. keyboard and mouse to the PS4, can't you? Yeah, we learned uh. that out. <laughs> but but I was like walking through Batu and we couldn't find a bathroom, and I didn't realize that you could click, you could just click the toilet and it just bring him to the bathroom. So I like peed myself, <laughs> and I was like dying of embarrassment, and it was uh it just was not just a like a time, just like a normal guys. ordinary was, adventure. <laughs> What you need to do is just you put one of those those bushes where they can pee in it and then just like leave let them do their business in the bushes. 
Uh, It's also amazing how many expansion packs they have for The Sims, at least on PlayStation 4. There's like, like, I want to say like a few dozen, like there's like one that's like Harry Potter, but it's not Harry Potter. So um, maybe I can feel good buying it without having to give any money to JK Rowling. And um, there's ones where you can get dogs and cats, but I'm sure they're needy too. So I don't know. I don't think I'm going to fall down this hole, but, but it was fun to play because, you know, I'm not allowed in theme parks here because theme parks are not open. And uh, it was good to get back to Batu in in some virtual, strange, we, weird virtual way. Anyways, okay, uh, that does it for today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you on Monday. I'm not going to allow any of you to, to you're not going to, you're not going to do it. I, I, I know that Jacob probably, probably emailed, messaged each and every one of you. This time it's not happening. I'm not, not allowing it. It's, it's, it's I, I've, I'm muting all of you. Goodbye. We'll see you on Monday. <laughs>